0: is Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. And this is another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. We are approaching the terminus of the 2020 Survival Project train route. Mm-hmm. And by request, what we're going to talk about this week is Amelia's class on burnout and music, which is a class she's been teaching all semester, and several people have uh, heard her talking about it and been like, "Tell us, Amelia, about <laughs> your class." So, uh tell us, Amelia, about your class. Okay, it's an honors class at the university where I teach because the director of the honors program uh, likes the book. He bought the book and gave it to his wife and his daughter and had me do like an honors meeting with them. And then he was like, hey, you want to teach a class on your book? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. That'd be great. He's like, but it also needs to fulfill the general university requirements for their aesthetic perspective, because my university, you know, all universities have like breadth requirements is what they called it at our undergrad where even if you're a science major, you have to take like at least one arts class, that kind of thing. So he wanted this class to fulfill the arts perspective also. So um, and you're like, that is not hard for me. I am both a musician and the author of this book about burnouts. So welcome to the center of my wheelhouse. Yes, I was excited about the subject. I was not excited about having to conform to the learning objectives that the university lays out. It's a very specific set of things you have to achieve you know to for students to have gotten the thing that counts as an aesthetics credit and I did not want to like shoehorn the content Mm. of the book in the class into these objectives so I had to in order to achieve that I had to like refocus the class a little bit so I had to cut some stuff that I would otherwise have done because so it's not like the class that I would imagine teaching in my dreams if I had a choice. It's a class that is, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I like it. It's a good class. I think it's working out very well, but it is a little bit um, teaching to the test, you know, fulfilling the requirement, checking the box, because, you know, we're, we're, we're up for accreditation and <laughs> my student work is going to be evaluated to see if it in fact counts um, as what we say it counts as, as a university. So, You know, as a teacher, I have found that when I'm forced to teach to a test or a specific paradigm, that actually helps me set limits on what I can include. And I find it helpful because I didn't have to make those choices. Those choices were made for me by the curriculum. So the other thing is that I'm on the committee to set those learning objectives. (laughs) (laughs) So, OK, I did. But I set them with having my like Music 101 class in mind, not with like teaching stress management with music. Sure. Like so. So. OK, so that's what it is. Um, the, the director of the honors program also gave the class its name, which is Music for Stress Management. I just put it as burnout in my calendar. No, I mean, I don't even like the title burnout. So like I don't like titles. Um, it's hard. Titles are hard. So anyway, it's called Music for Stress Management. And we'll probably end up calling the episode Music for Stress Management. Okay, great. (laughs) I don't like it, so that's fine. But it is what it is, and it's fine. So uh, basically, we started with an introduction to, like, feminism and stress and music, because these are the three things that the class is going to be about, and... Uh, The structure of the class is like that introduction of like these three things that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the semester. And then week by week, we go through the chapters of the book and each week they have to take a like a, a true false quiz to make sure that they read the chapter. And they also usually have an assignment to do that's like a music assignment or it might be an assignment related to the chapter, but it's usually a music assignment. And we meet twice a week, and on the first day of the week, we do music stuff, and on the second day of the week, we do burnout stuff. And then at the after we do all of that, a music thing, a burnout thing, they have a music assignment, they have a burnout quiz, and then they write a composite story where a composite character that they made up encounters a musical experience that teaches them something from the chapter. Okay. And then when they do that, the next thing they do is post in the online discussion which is a pre-reading discussion for the next chapter. So before they read the next chapter, they're posting kind of what their ideas are, preconceptions about the thing that they're about to go read about. And so in the discussions, they have to reply to someone whose experiences are like theirs and someone whose experiences are not like theirs so that they get a sense of not just laying out their own preconceptions, but also um, seeing the breadth and scope of all the kinds of preconceptions that lots of various different people have, that's good pedagogy right there. That's I, I have a degree in education, so like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was a, I was a teacher for five years. So yeah, the thing is, I was I was also a teacher, not in public schools or for anything under high school age even as low as high school age, and I learned all of my teaching in the classroom on a college campus, which I think is how a lot of professors learn to teach. Oh, yeah. So you know a fuck ton more about being a good teacher than I do, and I have absolutely followed your lead on a lot of the (laughs) development of workshops and educational stuff we do. Because you have a degree in education. Yeah, it's a learned skill, and it does take practice, but it's true that most of the professors at my school have no pedagogy instruction when they begin teaching. All they have is research and being a student. And yeah, it's hard. It's a, it's a complicated system. but it's a skill. Anyway, go ahead. So you have this one very good strategy of helping people to unearth their preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so if we just follow the stream of just the book stuff, that's They have the discussion about their preconceived notions, and then they read the chapter and they take a true false quiz, just a reading comprehension, make sure you actually read the chapter. Then we have an in-class discussion where they talk about the composite stories that are in that chapter. They have to report back to me, hey, so what did Julie learn? What did Sophie learn? Um, And we're also using one of the composite characters that we cut from the book. There's another composite character um, who is named Elena, and she was an undergraduate music student who had to drop out of college and kind of find her way through the world. She's a survivor of childhood trauma. She's Mexican-American. She's fat. She has a, and she's an opera singer. Um, so she experiences the world in a very different way than our other composite characters did. But we yeah. cut her for length and for um, simplicity. Simplicity. Like when I read we cut um, a lot of the trauma stuff we cut. Yeah. Yeah, and also because it's harder to keep track of four composite characters, which what we originally had. Mm-hmm. And keeping track of two was much easier, I think. So anyway, I'm having them read Elena's stories because they were cut very close to the end of writing. So her stories right were were done. Like done. She was done. So I'm using that content now. Because Yay, Elena I'm so does glad. because Elena does experience her stories were so good. Yeah, and Elena and they're all like going back and reading them now, I'm like, yeah, I I like know exactly who these people are. These right. are all so true, like, and it's, I'm glad that we have a chance to use them and that those stories get told. And because I am asking them to write composite stories about musical experiences, and almost all of Elena's composite stories are about musical experiences. It's kind of what she was for, was yeah. for getting all my friends' stories <laughs> into <the book>. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's all yeah. opera singers and, yeah, production and, yeah. So so we but have there an There are pieces discussion. just to be clear. There are pieces. So this is a composite character. If you've read Burnout, you know that there are these composite characters whose stories you follow through the entire arc of the book. Uh, there's two of them and we had two more and we cut them both. And one of them was Elena, this early 20s uh opera singer and Her stories were largely musical. Her character was musical because so many of the stories we had to integrate into her story were from musicians, but not all of them. Many of them we made into musical stories when it was actually writers I knew or professors or people in other disciplines that also required intense intellectual and emotional investment in their work when they had experienced adverse childhood experiences, and that shapes how you do creative and intellectual work. So she was there to represent this huge bulk of people in our lives. Exactly. So she's this trove of stories about how creators respond to stress, which is exactly what the course is about. So I included her back in. So we have this in-class conversation where we talk about the composite stories' characters, What do they learn? And did any of you here in the class have an experience like that? Have you ever, you know, had something that's like this? And they almost always have like really great examples of like, oh, yeah. And it's not the same experience, but it's along the same lines. And it helps me to know that they actually understood what we were trying to say, which is great. That's another uh, excellent pedagogical strategy, which is finding yourself in someone else's story and explaining how you see yourself in someone else's story. Right. It furthermore relates back to chapter six, where we talk about connected knowing. Exactly. I, during the class where we have the discussion, I precede that with some summary of what their online discussion was of their preconceptions, just kind of to sum up the trends and the themes. And then I explicitly talk about the ways that music relates to the content of the chapter. And then we finish with the composite stories. And then at the very end of that class, we end with one important thing where everybody says, not the most important thing they you know got from the chapter or even their favorite thing just one important thing any important thing you got from the chapter and that's really helpful for me to know also they got what we meant them to get and also to look at kind of how a group of readers the variety of things they take from it and uh, to see where there are trends of like Mm -hmm. they've all got the same idea or like there's certain specific things that come up and that's really nice and I think also they know that they're going to have to do that. So I'm hoping that as we go along, they're starting to read with the thought in mind of what's my one important thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't say that out loud, but it's in my mind. Yeah. So that's the and burnout I'm book. I'm sure many students do, because if it were me, I would. Yeah, exactly. So that's the burnout track. Simultaneous with that, alongside it, is happening the music track. Um, and the first half of the semester was on music analysis, where in order to achieve the general university requirements, I taught them music analysis skills, the here's how you hear tempo and meter, here's how you label them, here's how you hear pitch and melody and major and minor harmony, texture, timbre, articulation, dynamics, and form. We spend the first half of the semester listening and analyzing music and their midterm project. They analyze a song that they use for stress management and they analyze it objectively, rhythm, pitch, texture, timbre, articulation, dynamics, form. And then they also draw a connection between that objective content of the music to the intrinsic meaning of the music and then connect that to the extrinsic experience of listening and draw connections among those three things as to why this is an effective song for I super duper need an example okay one song was a like super ragey rap song like just screaming and hollering and the student said okay this is in simple duple it's got a fast tempo uh, it's in minor. It's got a, a thin texture that's melody and accompaniment with a mostly monophonic accompaniment. But in the middle, the accompaniment becomes polyphonic. Texture timbre. The, all the timbres uh, are electronic sounds and the voice is very like loud into the microphone, but um, it's also... So that your car will vibrate when you play it loud, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's also digitally altered. I don't know what the song is. I just know that mood. <laughs> yeah, so... They, that's the objective an- analysis and then they say, so the intrinsic uh, affect of the song is that it's meant to be like really angry and ragey, but my extrinsic experience of the affect is that it's really cathartic and it feels really good to listen to this song. And here's a story about the first time I heard this song and I was like, oh, this, this, this writer knows me and tells my story and like, it just feels right. And even though it's a really angry song, it actually feels really great to like sing along every word out loud in my car. Boom midterm, that's great, and it achieves everything for the GUR. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost exactly the same kind of assignment I use for my um, intro to music one hundred one class. Um, they have to analyze a song, and instead of connecting it to stress management, they do it from three different analytical perspectives: an aesthetic perspective, a judicial perspective, and a descriptive perspective. And they have to do all three. And then I surprise them on the day of the presentation, and I tell them. You're going to present your aesthetic perspective. And then they play the music for the class and they talk through their analysis. And the class has to write down, was that aesthetic, descriptive, or judicial? What What's judicial? This is a good song, is a judicial oh, analysis. Judgment of yes or no, right or wrong. Yeah, description is, I like this song. Aesthetic is, this song is a metaphor for death. <laughs> there were a lot of sad songs this year. A lot of sad yeah. songs. People are... It's dark. What's happening out Shit's there? Shit's real fucked up right now. Shit's real That's why up. we make this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, a lot of people are in that, like, this is the song I listen to because it helps me to feel okay about the fact that everyone and everything I love is going to die at end. Yeah. So, in addition to that music analysis track, I've come to look for America. Sorry. Okay. is that enough? that that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. That's just a random song in my head. All right. Sorry. (laughs) So alongside that music analysis track, what that's actually leading to is the second half of class where they're going to write a song. So they're gonna they have already been learning how to play the ukulele. I required every student to acquire a ukulele. I encourage them to try to get one for free, to borrow one from their ankle. Less than most textbooks, though. Oh, it's way less than most textbooks. And, you know, our book costs like $12, so, <laughs> so I don't feel yeah. bad about it. And you can get it used for like 5 So they all have to learn to play the ukulele. They're, they're learning to play uh, C, F, G, and A chords. And it was one week at a time. The first week, I gave them a quiz about playing the C, the C and the G chords. And then the next week, it was C, G, and F. And the next week, it was C, G, F, and A. So they've been learning to play the ukulele this whole time. Can and you just, for people, uh, just sing sort of like C, G, and F, so we have a sense of what that sounds like as chords? Yeah. My ukulele is not in tune, but C, A, F, G. Okay, there you go. It's the four chords that every song is made of. It's the, yeah, it's the four chords you can play. I mean, just C, F, and G, you can play, you can harmonize every song in the world with those three chords. Not (laughs) in the world, but in the Western world that uses our harmonic system because they include all the notes in the scale. So you can use substitutions to, you know, When a composer uses a different chord, you can substitute one of those three. So those are the only three chords you need to know. And A is just in a lot of songs, so I added that also because it's literally one finger to play, so it's easy. Oh yeah, I love A. So they've been doing that, and all of this adds up to the second half of the semester, where they're gonna write a song. I've already taught them about chords and playing them, and now I'm splitting them into ukulele pods. So they're gonna play together in real life, in groups of two or three or possibly four, whatever they can manage to do and still social distance. But a lot of them like know each other and live in the same residence halls and stuff anyways. So I think it'll be fine. Yes. To be clear, your your college has had on-campus learning. Is doing literally nothing different from pre-pandemic learning, except that everyone has to wear a mask and they make announcements about Please remember to wear your mask and don't have parties. They did kick some students out at the beginning of the semester for having a big party. So, but they aren't. T- uh, okay, let's. <clears throat> yeah. Let's refill You bet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, in these pods, they're going to write songs and perform them together. I'm not requiring them to sing. Because getting people to feel comfortable singing in front of other people is... A whole separate track that I don't have time lift. for. Yeah, it is. It's a thing I do all the time. Um, I've done it in academic classes before. I taught a music psychology class that like I taught a music psychology class where I had students at the end teach a song because they learn about, you know, memory and learning and musical structures and how they relate to musical memory and learning. So they have to learn to play ukulele and to teach a song Uh, And I spend that whole class, I spend six, eight weeks slowly creating a space where it's safe to sing in front of each other. And because I had to achieve the general university requirements for an aesthetics perspective course, I had to cut that from the course. So I had to cut mandatory singing, even though that would have been really good for them. Mm -hmm. They they already had enough of a little bit of panic when I told them they were going to have to be playing the ukulele. In front of each other oh. at a time. I mean, in my last semester in undergrad, I took a guitar class because I was dating a guitar player. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember the guitar professor at University of Delaware. Yeah. But I was I was so irrationally nervous about my fucking guitar final. All I had to do was go into his office and play a song I had practiced a bazillion times. And... When I went in there, I explained to him how I had used cognitive behavioral therapy strategies to like talk myself down from the catastrophizing of like, I'm going to fuck up this final and then I'm going to fail my semester and then I'm never going to get a job or go to grad school and be a failure as a human being, (laughs) die on the streets and beaten by dogs. I told him I had to talk myself down from that. It's how nervous I am about this fucking guitar final, guitar 101. People are nervous. I'm not totally hopeless at music and i was nervous like my whole life depended on this final yeah and singing is even worse because it's so personal because it's your body yeah and because yeah especially now in the 21st century there's so much shame associated with any kind of perceived imperfection with a voice where music is everything is auto-tuned within an inch of his life and there's nothing natural about voices we hear on the radio. And it's just oh like Simon fucking Cowell made it okay to shame people who enjoy singing, which sucks. Simon Cowell yes. stole voices from America. That's it's toxic and horrible. And I have spent most of my career trying to fight that, to teach people that their voices are in fact worthy, are in fact and what I would desirable. Classi- I, w- I would classify myself as a non-singer. I which would you're say, completely wrong, by the way. You're just it, inaccurate. That's <laughs> just not true. So sure. Your buttons classifier. Right. Uh, uh the I would say that the energy that shames people for singing makes people worse singers. Yeah. Because they start like clamping themselves down and not being able to eat a pitch. Yeah. It's it takes some very specific preparation to get students okay with singing in public especially now it has gotten worse in the past 20 years yeah okay so they're so, not singing i but they are going to write a song them. so they're in ukulele pods they have learned how to analyze music and to like make a connection between okay this is a sad song i know that it's sad because the words are sad but like what in the music tells me that it's sad or this is a happy song what in the music makes it sound happy it's in a major mode it has a fast tempo it has a triple meter like you know they know how to do that objective stuff now so now what they're going to do is they're going to write a song because they're going to learn the tools about organizing form and about organizing chord progressions and they can play the chord progressions for themselves and they're going to create a plan and a chord progression and a tempo and a meter and they're going to set all that stuff up that matches the thing that they want to say in their song and then i will sing their song if they don't want to sing it i will do it because I have no problem singing and I have no problem modeling the fact that I'm okay with that's singing. really really nice for them. Yeah. Or if they want to sing along with me, they can. Or if they all want to sing it together, they can. Or if they want to sing each other's songs, but not their own songs, they can. But they're going to write songs and they're going to play them and we're going to perform them together. And that's it. <laughs> and it'll be a song about, it'll be like my, I've been playing them week by week. Um, the songs that I've written that correspond to the chapters. Like I played New Hotness when we read chapter five. And, um we will put a link to that episode in the show notes. And we analyze And the abyss and ab- and Well we'll play abyss when we get to chapter 8. But I played the trauma song when we did chapter 4. Mhm. Um, this is why the stories are full of magic, the y- burnout or trauma episode. Yeah. So and then we analyze those songs and we talk about the the choices I made as a composer, um you know, what does the melody do? What does the harmony do? How does the tempo change? How does the meter change? And warning them all along, I wrote this song. I made these decisions. This is the thing that you're going to do in the second half of the semester. So. <laughs> is that all it? I think so. I'm not actually sure. Thunder oh. is curled up with her chin over the leg of my chair. Like, you know, I have a rocking chair. Yeah. And it, she's like over the rocking edge of her chin is just draped over it. That doesn't seem safe. I, it really doesn't. But I need to stay really still. Okay. <laughs> You're like I'm not gonna look at what Olive's doing. I think there might be a ball under the couch. Oh, poor Olive! But you can't get. But I get I can't get off my chair because I will strangle Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's bad. Thunder, I, Olive, I can't help you. <laughs> I cannot help you, Olive. So that's really, that's really the whole class is that it's, uh, so it's... So you're teaching them about emotion from sort of biological and cultural perspective, and you're teaching it from an aesthetic. How do we create art that helps people? So this is like chapter one all semester. In addition to those two separate things, I'm also giving them the experience of using music in a mm-hmm. variety of ways that help manage stress. And asking them to think critically about the ways they use music. Exactly. In their emotional lives. Yeah. That sounds like a fun class. It is fun. It's very fun. The hardest part is teaching the content of the book and like talking about it again. And a lot of that, it's, there's a lot of really dark, difficult stuff. And in one way, I'm glad that that's all in the book. And going back and having to like go through the book again and write a true false quiz for every chapter was nice because it, it reminded me how much work we did in the book to prepare people for getting myths busted, for having their assumptions challenged. So I don't have to do that work in the class, which is a huge relief. Yeah, you've already did that work. I already did that work. (laughs) And one of the things, so hearing about you teaching it all semester, it's been valuable for me to hear like, these ideas feel really new to a lot of your students. Oh my God, yeah. Like the patriarchy is news. The actual meaning of gaslighting. It's news. The bikini industrial complex is definitely news to your students. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of it is news. The, they love the monitor in particular was really helpful for them. Yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, of course it was. And I, I, the things that they have so far pointed out as their one important thing is the same stuff that everybody tells us, wow, this was really great. I mean, there are a few like individuals who have certain life experiences that mean that one thing stands out to them. Like, Honestly, the white boys in my class, there are 18 students in the class. Two of them are men. Um, They're both white. And both of them pointed out when we read chapter four, one of their most important things was the tall tree fairness test and the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry. Like it had never like they had never thought about thinking about the world in a way that was not just about their own challenges, but like paying attention to where they don't experience challenge. And that maybe someone who says that they have challenges is telling them the truth. Like someone else who's different from them says, hey, white man, I have challenges that are different from yours. You can tell that because I am who I am. That had never occurred to them. That is exactly why that stuff is there. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to change anything like big picture, long term. And like all teachers ever can do is sow seeds, man. Plant seeds. That's it. That's all you're ever doing. Yeah, but it was. And if the grout is infertile, there's nothing you can do about that. It, but if the fact That's that not they- That's your job. They volunteered. Olive is eating my slipper. Hang on a second. Yeah. The fact that they volunteered as their one important thing to be that, I was like, yay. <laughs> not every slipper is your slipper, Olive. Not every slipper's for you. Not every slipper's your slipper, Olive. Not every slipper's for you. Okay, I'm back. Okay, I sang Olive and Not Every Slipper's Your Slipper Olive song. (laughs) Not every slipper is your slipper olive. Like that. Nailed it. (laughs) I bet it was even in the same key. It was not. You sang it higher than I did. Oh. Yeah. Uh, So that's the class. uh, That's it. That's what I'm doing. Can you uh, give us an example of a few other one important things that have come up that you're like, oh, it's important that that was someone's one important thing. Uh, for several people in chapter six, it was the fact that sadness is the beacon and the bad signal Mm -hmm. um, that it's, they, they felt ashamed of being sad and like they were a burden on other people when they're sad. Um, Of course, that's how they felt. That's how everyone is taught to feel. Exactly. Yes. Uh, And especially students who've experienced depression and anxiety that really stood out to them as like a, Oh, I'm allowed to have feelings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Positive reappraisal was a big deal to several students, the idea that things that are difficult are good for you. And I have to say, having that right there in chapter two is really useful for the class, because then when students talk about, oh, this is hard, I'm like, right. And that's why it's good for you. (laughs) It's so good for you. I've already taught you why I'm doing this to you. It's not because I'm delicious. It's almost as if the book was written by people who were teachers. (laughs) Yeah. Almost. Almost as if. Yeah. So. So that's your class. That's it. Yeah people asked about it the part i didn't understand because i didn't write the book the part i didn't understand was the music part which is the timbre tempo rhythm pitch texture timbre articulation dynamics and form those are the uh, broadly speaking elements of music about which i know very little and uh maybe one day you can give us a primer on sure pitch timbre texture dynamics rhythm and form. pitch texture timbre rhythm, articulation pitch. dynamics form jesus god almighty <laughs> Yeah, Pretty happy, lessons. calm, generous, and attentive to the exactly. needs of others. Yeah, yeah. Soon, certain specific, concrete, positive, and personal. Yeah, <laughs> right. These lists that we can just rattle off yeah. because that's what we know. That's, this is one of the lists that you can rattle off. Exactly. Stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, despair, and repress rage. We've all got it. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my lists. Yeah. So, um, having talked about your class. Wait, hold on. One step. Step. So, you asked about one important thing. One of the most important weeks of most important thing, the most impactful like most strongly felt important things was in chapter five, the bikini industrial complex. Mm. Everybody. I mean, that's the one class where I taught. No, no, no. Chapter four is the one class where I taught a whole slide. Cause we say in chapter four that like uh, men suffer from misogyny too, not as much as women. And that's another book. So I took mm-hmm. some time during the class discussion to like teach about the ways that misogyny hurts men But in chapter five, that's important and good. Yeah, in chapter five, I didn't really teach anything extra outside of the chapter, but the one important thing people felt very strongly about the BMI chart and the fact that shame is not an effective strategy for improving people's health. People's health, exactly. They really liked the Sophie's story about her buying the dress. They thought that was like, they were ready to cheer her on. That was probably the most intense response was to chapter five, which I think Mm. is, I was really glad because chapter five is the chapter that no journalists want to talk to us about. Absolutely. But when Ted wanted to publish an excerpt of the book, they picked chapter five because it is so important and so impactful. But the thing is, most journalists work for media corporations that are funded by the Bikini Industrial Complex, so they can't spend too much time talking about the fact that their whole existence is there to make women believe that they have to be thin yeah so that people can make millions and millions of dollars yeah so cool yeah <laughs> so we, we should is chapter six this week mm-hmm. and how's that going oh. chapter six is the connection chapter bubble of love yeah where we talk about my teaching experience of using music to help students understand emotion and to experience and process emotion. I did confess to them that when you asked me, you wanted to give the talk about Frozen and feelings. And you originally asked me like, how do I work out with like the music professor to get some students to come sing these songs? And I was giving you strategies for like contacting him and how you could like coach the students and prepare them to do that. And you were like, oh, this is too much work. How about I make it a sing along? But when we wrote that, I we sleekified it to make it for space. And we did. And and poignancy to make it me saying make it a sing along, which if I had known that that was an option for you, I totally would have suggested that. But you specifically asked me about getting students to sing. I confess that to my class. I said, this is not really how that happened. Just for the record. Clean I mean, slate, full disclosure. I wouldn't have known about the option of sing along if you weren't already my sister. So, so it's I, it's only a shortcut. It's, it's not untrue. It was it's only just... a shortcut. We just we 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 focused our roles as they are established in the book and kept that tight but i did i did let my class know like full disclosure yeah i can't and it's full credit for that 100 explicitly true that i did that talk as a sing-along and midway through the talk it was dark with this larger than life screen of Elsa singing Let It Go Mm -hmm. and more than 300 Smith students singing That Perfect Girl, that perfect girl is gone. And like, I was, I was like, this is the best moment of my entire professional life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why is it that having gotten a PhD basically in public health and being like taking the science really seriously and being really careful to make sure that i'm clear and effective in my communication strategies about the science how is the peak of my career these students belting along with a disney princess how is that what's happening to me right now because it turns out the experience of doing things that are good for you is not necessarily scientific turns out a lot of times it's it's really artistic People say they want the science. People tell me they find the science really important. And then when they talk to me about their experience of the book, the science is never the thing they talk about. Yeah. After that talk, the science is not what people came up to me to talk about afterward. They came up to talk to me about the singing. They came up to me with tears in their eyes or streaming down their faces saying, this is exactly what I needed. And it wasn't the science. Yeah. They needed the music. Yeah. I think that the, the feelings... Are the nutrients in the book and the science is the liquid that the nutrients are suspended in. Like that's how you ingest it. But the thing that really burnout's a smoothie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like the science is the ice cubes and the and the feelings are the banana. Yeah. It's the thing with all the nutrients. Yeah. Which is one of the main reasons why burnout had to be written by both of us together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I have to, I also students keep like saying, I have to say, I put stars around this sentence here. And then they read me a sentence that you wrote. And I was like, yeah, Emily wrote that. Oh yeah. Emily. There wrote that is no too. such <laughs> thing as a sentence that I wrote that you didn't also write. You rewrote every sentence I wrote and I, you re, I rewrote every sentence you wrote. Well, there is no sentence that both of us didn't put our hands on. Okay. That's true. But there are sentences that you came up with. That when I read it, I was like, I have learned a thing from that sentence that Emily wrote. So there are a couple of times students say like, well, this particular sentence here, I was like, yeah, I learned something when I read that sentence too, because Emily wrote it. I'm going to claim responsibility for wellness is not a state of mind or a state of being. It's a state of action. I wrote that. I remember writing it. I remember feeling like, oh, that's really good. That's true. (laughs) That is definitely something people should remember. It was late in the process. Yeah. Sadness is the beacon is another one. Sadness is the Beacon is not original to the book. I've been saying that for 10 years in my classroom. Yeah, that's true. It comes from the movie. Which, I mean, we talk about the movie. We reference the movie. We say this is from the movie. The movie is Inside Out, by the way. But I've been saying the idea that sadness is the beacon all the time. What What Inside Out gave me, the movie, the little cartoon Inside Out gave me, was an example of, like, joy learns the lesson of what sadness is for. Yeah. And I felt so empowered by that movie. Like, look, I've got a powerful emotive story mm-hmm. showing joy happiness learning why sadness is really important having come from a place of believing the sadness just needs to hide in a corner right exactly which i was like all finally yeah. thank you so much pixar for making this fucking movie so that i can use it to teach with which i do all the time oh yeah yeah and i make therapists and physicians cry yes. every time yeah you also did my um, She Is So Beautiful exercise. We talk in the book about the She Is So Beautiful exercise. I did. All these slides of people who go by she, her pronouns. I with did. With different kinds of bodies. And how did that go? It was a little sterile. I was not was not satisfied. I cut your slides a lot. There, You had a lot of naked people in the slides. And I, as the music professor, did not feel comfortable showing that many slides of that many naked women. Like mostly there were breasts. There were no naked full frontal nudity pictures, yeah, but there were some breasts. There a lot. So I I eliminated most of those. Not all of them cuz it just felt like a lot and I didn't want to make my students uncomfortable. Yeah, that that there's your problem. Well, yeah, maybe that is my problem. But there were look, there were plenty of other kinds of women besides naked women that make people uncomfortable. Hairy women, fat women, trans women, like there were uncomfortable women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There were challenging women, like women in wheelchairs. Like, so, and to say she is so beautiful. So you still, it was still challenging. And I'm explicit with the fact that um, that experience of noticing judgment in your mind and continuing to look, continuing to listen, is a thing that I explicitly teach my students. So when we did the she's so beautiful exercise, I... I told them before we started, this thing that's going to happen is you're going to experience stimulus and your brain is going to respond with initial approach avoid judgment. And then you get to decide if you agree with your brain's initial response or if possibly there's another option and you can reteach your brain to accept more things as safe and not to be so like defensive of its initial judgments. So I train them to do that when they analyze music. It's always the first thing we do when they listen to music is they acknowledge what's their initial response, like or dislike. And then their job after that is to keep listening anyway. So yeah, the She's So Beautiful exercise is a a direct extension of the way I ask them to listen to music. And I was really literal about explaining that to them. On the day, I did get the impression that once the slide came up, whoever was next just went, "She is so beautiful," and like didn't look, and it was very instantaneous and mechanical, and it didn't feel like they were looking. They didn't go there, thinking. I don't think well. Okay, so they didn't go there in the moment in the room, right? But again, planting seeds, right? Exactly. I am totally sure. the The thing about the the slide deck. So for those who don't know, it's a it's a deck of slides. A picture who's of people who go by she/her pronouns of all different kinds of bodies and the task is you go around the room and each person one at a time for each slide like so here's slide number one person number one says she is so beautiful slide number two person number two says she is so beautiful they look at the slide they say the thing my instruction to them is to look at the slide say it and mean it if they possibly can and the idea and if they don't want to or if they can't see the slide or for any other reason they just pass to the next person and that's completely fine and My original idea with the exercise was that people would see someone with a body like theirs and hear someone say that it was beautiful. And it turns out that is not what's powerful about the exercise. What's powerful about it is that you see a lot of bodies that you've been taught are unacceptable and you feel the aversion that you have been taught to feel in response to that body and you are challenged to overcome that discomfort and perceive it as a beautiful body. Because the ultimate goal for us in the Bikini Industrial Complex chapter, chapter five, is to create a world where all bodies are beautiful already because they are bodies. All bodies are beautiful. (sighs) And so there's all bodies represented. And it is hard. It is tough for people to have that experience. I mean, therapists who will in the moment, recognize that they have responded with aversion to the bodies of their clients. Like big shit happens in the room. And it's extra hard. I do acknowledge it is extra hard for college students compared to professionals because they're really early in their journeys. Yeah. And I know for sure that if they don't get there in the room, they get there later. That's good to know. I had a student challenge me actually to say that it was like, she thought I had been biased in my selection of bodies of choosing them like so that they all didn't conform with a culturally constructed aspirational ideal. And in the deck I chose, maybe not in what you chose because you deleted the ones with the breasts. um, Not all of them. I was just... No, 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 I know. But I, I was really deliberate in my ratios to make sure I'm representing people of like people of this body size represent this proportion of the population. People of this race represent this proportion of the population. People with single or double mastectomies represent this proportion of the population. Hijabi women uh, represent this proportion of the population. Like I was really deliberate about it. And so in the last class of the semester when I was teaching women sexuality, it was mostly devoted to what questions do you have? And they could turn in anonymous questions. And one of the questions is why did you choose all non-conforming bodies? And I was like, I, I didn't, I just chose proportional representations of conforming bodies. And if it felt like none of those bodies conformed, that gives you information about what, you what that definition of conforming is that's in your head, the the lens through which you saw those pictures. So we should talk, people are going to want us to talk about uh, the experience with Brene Brown. Oh, right. Yeah. That's a thing that we did. <laughs> that is a thing that really happened. There's a recording <laughs> of it and everything. Yeah. It started with a tweet. Somebody tweeted, hey, Brene Brown, you should have Emily and Amelia Nagoski. And we were just excited about the tweet that somebody tweeted to Brene Brown about us. Now Brene Brown knows we're alive. Yeah, woo! And then we got an email, you know, Yeah, her response was, I'm reading it now. Yeah, and we were like, that's amazing! And then she invited us to come talk to her. We were like, what? (laughs) Oh my god, of course, of course we will! Let me look at my schedule and see if I'm available. No! Right? (laughs) We were like, I will clear my schedule and be available for that. Yeah. So we did, and it was great. She's Exactly like she sounds. She's, there's no like editing to make it seem like she's different from who she is. She's just real straightforward and natural. Yeah, and... there were some times where our technology broke down and we were just waiting for the technology to get fixed. So we're sitting around chatting and Brene sitting around chatting is exactly the same as Brene doing an interview. on the actual yep. podcast. Yeah. She was just incredibly like herself. kind and generous yep. and patient with us. And yes. Yeah. It was a great experience. And we're like intensely grateful. I have actually lived a Brené Brown story in response to the consequences of the Brené Brown interview. <laughs> how did you have to deal with feelings of like imposter shame, vulnerability? Things? No, no, no. It was actually a uh, uh, anticipatory dread. Oh. So in one of her TED talks in her TED TED in her TEDx TED talk, uh, she talks about anticipatory dread and I'm how just, we just wait a second. Story of, like, TEDx TED is how Emily jokingly refers to main stage TED, TED in Vancouver. You know, Vancouver Ted, original Ted, Ted. Ted original big original Ted, Tedx Ted, 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 as opposed to Tedx Vancouver, Tedx Boston, Tedx University somewhere, like which right. are just little mini Ted events that are not directly connected to actual that are not ten thousand dollars for the cheap seats. Right. Yeah, the ten thousand dollars for the cheap seats Ted is the Vancouver Ted. So Emily calls it Tedx Ted. Tedx Ted instead of Tedx whatever. I'm told I'm funny. Yep, that's definitely true. <laughs> It's definitely true that I am told that I'm funny. (laughs) See, you are funny. So she talks about, like, imagine a family driving in a car on Christmas Eve, and everybody's, like, singing Christmas carols, and there's a light snow. What happens next? And of course, we're all like, there is a terrible accident. (laughs) They are abducted by aliens, right? Yeah. That's anticipatory jet. Like, why can't we just be happy about that? And so Burnout sold more books as a direct consequence of the fact that Brene Brown talked about our book. Yeah. Oh. And so we've been watching. So the now Amazon you're like, rank. What is there gonna happen now? It's gonna be a big car crash. Like something terrible. So I'm like, just like anticipating the dread. I've been mean, like, it's gonna end. Just wait for it to end. Come on, let's get to the end. Let's get to the bad part. Because now somebody important is gonna dread. read it and hate it. Right. And we're going to be we're like, gonna get, like so many bad things are going to happen as a result of this good thing. Yeah. Like, just it's all going to come crashing down around our ears. That's funny. Uh, because somebody has noticed that we did this. Yeah. And in her TED talk, she's like, there's a solution to this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the solution is? No. I'll give you a hint. It's in our chapter eight. Oh, self compassion. It's turning toward gratitude. Oh, fucking gratitude. Jesus. Fucking gratitude. Which my therapist reminded, I was like explaining to her my anticipatory dread. And I was like, is there a correct emotion to feel? Is there like something I can do about this? And she said, well, gratitude. And I was oh, like, God damn it, that's gratitude. what Brene Brown says. But you know what? Like genuinely for real. I <laughs> my therapist am so... is also a social worker. Yeah. So she like agrees with exactly. almost everything Brene Brown says. But in truth, I, I feel so grateful. Not only that she read the book and wanted to talk to us, but she lifted us up onto her platform like what what a generous thing to do and Yes. Wow. That, that was it was great to talk to her, but I know she didn't but have to do that. The consequences of that conversation are genuinely life changing for us. Yeah, it's and I I I don't even know how to like we need to write her a letter. Like sing what her are a we song. gonna send her a card? Like I don't know. Thanks, Brene Brown for a Basket. Holy crap. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. It didn't occur so to, to me anyone at the who's time listening that to this was... episode because they were introduced to us through Brene Brown. Hi, hi! We're super glad you're listening. Start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. This is our second to last episode in this season. <laughs> yeah. Those who've been listening from the beginning will know that this is a podcast for any feminist who feels overwhelmed and exhausted <laughs> by they have everything they have to do in 2020, and still worries that they're not doing enough. Yeah, uh, and. The goal was always to go for exactly one year from uh, the first week in November of 2019 to the first week in November, that is to say the election yeah. of 2020. Yeah. And here we are. And we did not plan on 2020. We knew it was going to be bad, but not this bad. Jesus. We did not. Yeah. And people are like, how did you know it was going to be bad? Like, we know be bad, but we did not know it obvious. was going to be pandemic bad. Yeah, we thought it would be, maybe there'll be like a woman presidential candidate and there'll be a lot of misogyny in the news. Right, right. That's kind of what I was thinking. That's what I thought too. Nope. (laughs) Nope. That is not, that is not what it is. Nope. It's worse. Until Kamala Harris was nominated for vice president, then there, then there was some of that. Yeah. But I mean, I think. And also the racism that went with it. So that was, that was. Yeah. I think the bigger issue is the quarter of a million people who are dead of a virus that our president told us was not dangerous. Yeah. That's. That's. That's apocalyptic. A quarter of a million people in our country. And the fact in our that country. I got that virus and four months later, I'm still suffering. Your life has to be structured around your recovery from that disease. Yeah. Yeah. So 2020 is worse than we expected. Yeah. Ugh. For those who have said, uh, and and how nice that no one has said, good, I'm glad you're not making any more podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Because because people to say that the people out loud. who don't want to listen to our podcast don't. have not listened to it, fine. and that's not everything. Well, is that's for a everyone. Beautiful thing, yeah, yeah. If it's not for that's you, it's not for you, and that's fine. That's fine. Because honestly, the podcast is for us. us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do something. Yeah, in 2021, we do not know yet what we're not gonna go away. Feminist survival is not going to become a non-issue, right? regardless of what happens yeah. in the election. Yeah. And in some outcomes of the election, it's going to become extra important. So we're going to do something. We do not know what it is. We will let you know on our Instagram feed at FSP 2020. Yeah. If you want to keep up to date of what we're doing, our Twitter feed at FSP 2020 is basically just a duplication of our Instagram feed. So if you're on Twitter instead, that's fine. I know we should have a newsletter and like send you monthly updates of what's going on with us, but that feels like such I a I have a lot of depression and I just <laughs> <laughs> that filled up the space where a newsletter would have uh, gone. Okay, but also think about the big picture that like we're actually genuinely making the podcast as an experience of making a thing to like yes. help us with our stress. Yes. And like to do a thing so we feel like we're doing something to help someone. And the idea of like cultivating a newsletter and a mailing list is very businessy and growing our platform and like, and it's but not about we that are for not us. It just it's just it's just not about that. I mean, yeah. maybe someday we'll be like focusing on really you know making the whatever bigger and building an audience. Yeah, and, yeah, but that's just not that's never what we and came we're to so do. grateful to the people who do listen. Like, like we say thank you for are listening why- at the yes. end and like really that is deeply yeah. The fact that you listen helps us to feel like we are contributing to making 2020 less of an apocalyptic nightmare. And when we get expressions of gratitude and people who tell us, here's a thing that helped me, like that's us making a thing to make somebody's life better and then you give us back something to make our lives better and we just all help contribute to just more love and joy in the world and it's working and that's it that is the thing we did the thing we made it we did it all of us together we did it it was never about the platform and the audience and the so like the fact that we haven't done all that it's because that was never the goal and remains not the goal right So, in conclusion, as we approach the last episode, that's going to be a one important thing, just as Amelia in her class and I in my class, and when I do multi-day workshops, at the end of those multi-day workshops, I ask people to tell me what's one important thing you learned. Doesn't have to be the most important thing you learned, just one important thing that sticks with you that you might share with other people. If you want to let us know on Instagram, it's at FSP 2020. If you want to email us, it's feminist survival project 2020 at gmail.com. And we're going to collect those and get a sense of what the themes are, read some of them. Of course, it's entirely private. We're not going to read your name or any personal details. But we're interested personally in what mattered most to you. And we think it will make a really good way to wrap up the season. To be like, here is the theme of what people are saying was the most important thing they took away from this year with us. Even if this year with us was the last month and you binged all of the episodes, (laughs) I wanna hear. Like, in that time, I know for sure that for me, the most important thing was the Embrace Tiger episode, where like I was down the depression toilet I call my depression the blueberry pie I get sucked into (laughs) like I'm dropped from a height into a pool filled with blueberry pie filling and being plunged into that blueberry pie filling is what depression feels like for me so Amelia was talking to me from the edge of a pool filled with blueberry pie filling and I was underneath and she was like welcome to tiger (laughs) I was like right it's tiger the blueberry pie is tiger and I can return to mountain and then I will go back into the blueberry pie and then I'll return to mountain. So I don't know what the most important thing was for you listening. I hope you will tell us at FSP 2020 or feminist survival project, 2020 at gmail.com. Do you want to wrap us up? Um, I want to say another thing about my class that just occurred to me that I should say about my class, um, oh, which is yeah. that it, I, it was planned as a in-person class and then COVID. And then it was a hybrid class and then post COVID fatigue. And now it's an online class. But as soon as I knew I was going to be teaching online, I decided to not make my students call me Dr. Nagoski, um, which when Trump was elected, I told my students they had to call me Dr. Nagoski instead of Amelia, just because you never I didn't know there were so many misogynists in the world enough to get someone elected like that. Anyway, so I had I had done that kind of as a feminist choice, Um, but I decided that Zoom learning already has so many barriers that I, I changed to call me Amelia. I showed my students, here's my spare bedroom that I'm teaching from. Like, this is my setup. Here's my cat, like, just sitting there. I have to clean that pillowcase because she's covering it in fur. I swear a lot. Because, I mean, I figure I swear in the... Anyway, so the way I teach the class, I just wanted to add that I did make that choice also to not have any pretense or worry about professionalism. And I just, I, I, I made the choice to not have any personal barriers that might be like ones that I would have had up if I'd been teaching in person all semester yeah because I just thought that was important not only for the content of the class which it does help with the content of the class um, but also just for the fact that we're all staring at each other through a webcam And that is this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. As we said, you can contact us at FSP2020 on the social medias and email us feministsurvivalproject2020 at gmail.com. And we mean it sincerely when we say thank you for listening. Not every slipper is your slipper, Olive. Not every slipper's for you. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.